am an over-preparer, and as I was preparing the sermon, um, I had like three different intros. I had a really funny one, like a really charming one, and then like a super emotional one. Um, and I was talking to my friend, Christine, who's also a pastor, and as I was processing this with her, she hit me up with this question. She said, Camille, isn't it better to be vulnerable than it is to put on a show? And that wrecked me. I was like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and it wrecked me in the best way because it reminded me that the gospel is vulnerable. And it's vulnerable because it's made to connect with ourselves and connect with each other as we struggle to find hope. So today I am sharing with you all that I'm super nervous and I am preaching on the thing that I am not very good at, which is rest. Um, so this is me saying, you know how people like preach to the choir, literally preaching to myself. So like, welcome to the party, <laughs> everyone. But I wanna take our realization about vulnerability and I'm gonna drop us into ancient Babylon. So this is about the year 580 BCE and it's when the kingdom of Judea has fallen to Babylon. So that means King Solomon's lavish temple is destroyed and Jerusalem is besieged. And this is a moment of severe pain and devastation for all of the ancient Israelites because every making of glory and grandeur and strength that they have has been demolished. And now they are prisoners of Babylon. They are exiled from their ancestral homeland. Families are separated. Children are murdered. And many are deported. So this is a time of utter devastation and lament. And it's visceral and it's vengeful and it weeps for all that is lost. And from it, we get one of our most controversial Psalms, Psalm 137. And I'm going to read it to you because I want us to sit in solidarity with this Psalm and with what Israel is experiencing at the time. So the Psalm goes, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. And they said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I don't remember you, if I don't consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, when the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is really violent. And this is one of those Psalms where people come up to me and they'll be like, well, tell me about Christianity and then like go directly to this Psalm. And it's one of those moments where I'm like, oh, great. Like let's have this conversation. Um, but I think about this Psalm a lot because it's so violent. 
And when I feel like I'm in a place of utter devastation from current events, I really find myself fixated on this psalm. Not because I'm violent or vengeful, let me just like say that out loud. <laughs> I'm a nonviolent person. But the psalm begins with hopelessness, and then it ends with this dream of vengeance. It's violent because the people of Israel experience so much hurt and so much pain. And from it, we realize that violence is a cycle. It goes in a circle. And if we don't have an intervention to end the cycle of violence, it will continue on as vengeance. One vengeance to another, to another, to another. And it goes on and on and on. But in the middle part of the psalm, there the psalmist is speaking an uh, intervention from the violence. And it's in verses 4 through 6. And the psalmist writes, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So in this section, the people of Israel are saying that they need to remember God and to remember their homeland. They need to focus on their spirituality and their people instead of respond to the violence done to them by the Babylonian Empire. And there is this book that I like to read called Inspired, and it was written by the late Rachel Held Evans. And in it, she herself wrestles with finding ways for her to love scripture again. And what she discovers in her book is that the stories of Genesis were told to revive hope in the hopeless situations of the Babylonian exile and in enslavement. So all of the book of Genesis is a way of saying we deserve hope. In Psalm 137, what the writer is saying in these, these passages of intervention, they're saying, God, how can I forget you? How can we forget you? But what do we do when our spirits are too broken to sing? And then this is their answer. They say that they'll remember God in a story. And they do it. They tell their stories to keep their hope alive. Because in our deepest devastation, a story will provide medicine and rest to a weary heart. It hurt too much to say the word Jerusalem. It hurt too much to speak of it. So Jerusalem became a story, and the city became a garden named Eden, and the people of Israel spoke of how Adam and Eve were exiled for betraying God, the same situation that they believed they were in. These stories of Genesis are the Israelites earnestly trying to remember themselves and remember a time when God was there for them, and they're trying to not forget that they were chosen by God and are still chosen by God in their deepest devastation. So what I want us to do is I want us to look at the creation story with this lens. I want us to be able to see Israel seeking hope. Because the story is a creation, uh, uh, the story is a series of interventions where the Israelites are encouraging each other. They're saying things like, hey, remember when this happened? Hey, remember when this happened? I know this is bad, but remember when this. So can I get that image of the story? I, this is my children's ministry image. <laughs> the story of creation. <laughs> so 
So I'll go through all day, all the days. On day one, God creates light. But the Israelites say are, they are devastated. But remember when God made light to end our devastation. On day two, God creates evening and morning. And the Israelites are saying, we are enslaved to work day and night. But remember when God separated day and night for two different things, for two different activities? On day three, God created the land and the seas. We are starving. But remember when God made the sea to give us water and the land to provide us with food. On day four, God made the sun, the moon, and the stars. The Babylonians worshiped the sun and the moon, but remember that it was God who created the sun, the moon, and the stars. Our God created the thing that they worship. Our God is higher. Day five, God creates the animals. The Babylonians decorated their sacred shrines with birds and fish to please their gods. But remember when God made the birds and the fish out of his own pleasure. Day six, God created humans. The Babylonians believe that we are meant to serve God. But remember when God gave us dominion over everything? And day seven, God rested. Violence is the reality of our way of life, but remember when God rested. You see, the Israelites dreamed of rest. Generations of Israelites in Babylon spent their entire lifetime in obscurity and chaos and hurt and harm, and they told the story of creation as a way of building hope through resisting the narrative of endless work and suffering that was given to them by the hands of Babylon. So day seven of the creation myth is not about God working hard and getting tired. It's about what God is giving us. On day six, God made humans, meaning that the first thing Adam and Eve did was on day seven. They were created for rest. They rested, and the narrative of creation is not so much a literal account of how the world was made. It's a story of hope for an oppressed people who are stubborn enough to believe they deserve more than the violence of their everyday lives. So, a little thing about me. I grew up in spiritual spaces that would preach about rest, and the pastor would focus on day seven, right? Day seven, work hard, get your rest. I feel like I'm quoting like five or six sermons that I've heard throughout my lifetime in saying that. And they would say, God is rested, and that's why we rest. But honestly, I'm really unsettled with this now because it's, it's pretty classist, honestly. Not everyone is allowed to rest in this economy and in these unjust systems. And I am reminded that those who have, who have access to a day seven life will easily forget that the creation story was made by people living at day zero. So people who live at day zero are the ones who are struggling to survive. The working class, the functionally homeless, the single parent, the immigrant, the field worker, 
the refugee, the incarcerated, the queer person, the transgender person, the trafficking victim, those who are living in domestic abuse, those who work two jobs and 20 hour days for seven days a week just to pay rent and groceries, these are day zero people. The gospel was made for people at day zero because it was made by people who are living at day zero, who are dreaming towards a day seven so that they could leverage their privilege and bring other people from day zero to day seven. The gospel is medicine. It's medicine for the hopeless, and it helps us bring people to the place where the kingdom of God is. So in my eyes, the creation myth is a blueprint for justice. And justice is the place where empires are dismantled and new worlds are built. And they're created so that we can all flourish. We can all find day seven together. But in order to understand that, and, to, or, and in order to understand rest, we have to stop looking at day seven. We have to stop thinking about that. Instead, I want us to look at day zero, the very beginning of creation, to understand how God laid the foundation for oppressed people to pursue rest. So we'll go to Genesis 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God said that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. So there's three things. I can't, I'm like, I'm such an Enneagram three. I'm like, checklist, right? There's three things in here that I want us to look at when it comes to rest. And the first is that rest helps us build a new world. So when the Israelites told the stories of creation, they put all their hopes into one day having rest without having to earn it or work for it or please someone for it. So these stories that they told were medicine and prayers and resistance baked together in order to deliver hope to one another. To rest is to build the capacity to dream. To dream is to restore the soul. And to restore the soul is to build a new world. There is this writer that I love, and her name is Walida Imarisha. And she writes speculative fiction, so that's like sci-fi, fantasy, all these things. But she's also an activist, so she writes in these different realms. And she has this quote that I just adore. And she says, whenever we try to envision a world without war, without violence, without prisoners, without capitalism, we are engaging in speculative fiction. We are organizing, oh, all organizing is science fiction. Organizers and activists dedicated their lives to creating and envisioning another world. The story of creation of Genesis 1 is a liberative text allowing us to pursue a new world outside of what we think is possible, outside of the violence that we know in our everyday. And I realize that this language can like scare a lot of people. I probably sound like a heretic to somebody. It's all good. But I want us to recognize that as Christians, we're pursuing the kingdom of God, which is a world that is so vastly different than what we currently know. It's a new world. 
And every time Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he planted seeds in our imagination. The kingdom of God is like this, it's like that. There is no clear definition. Everything was a metaphor with Jesus because he wanted to give us a fantasy to help us bring his nonviolent peacemaking world into our own. So when we rest, we partner with Jesus in doing that and building a new world. Okay, let's go back to the text. <laughs> so in Genesis 1, we have the word for darkness, which is chosek. Chosek has two definitions, darkness and obscurity. So here we see, now the earth was formless and empty, and there was chosek, was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Some translations use the word chaos, but it's not chaos, it's obscurity, as in no one knew what would happen next. There was so much hurt and so much pain, the people of Israel couldn't think beyond what was happening. And I know that we have been taught to think of darkness as this place of evil, and I personally, I'm gonna push back on that. Because darkness is an intimate place. When you are in darkness, you learn to rely on your other senses to guide you. It is a place where you build self-trust. It is a place where you find who you are able to trust. And when you are in times of obscurity, you hold on tighter to the people who are important to you. Darkness is there for a lesson, not one of punishment, but one of trust and safety. So before the beginning of creation, God was resting in the darkness, developing self-trust in this intimate space. And the world could not have been created if God had not existed first in the darkness and chosen to rest in order to create. So next, rest is for community. There are two separate names for God in these four verses. The first is Elohim, which is in yellow, and it's a plural masculine noun. So if we can attribute a pronoun to God in this verse, it would be they. When they began to create the earth. The second name for God is Ruach, which is a singular feminine noun. Ruach Elohim is the name of the Holy Spirit. She is the wind of God. She hovered over the waters. And this means that there was an inclusive community resting in the darkness. The community was named God. We call God community. The best way to think of this is through the triune, right? We honor and worship our God three in one, God, Son, and Spirit. They, he, she, and that community rested together in order to dream together, in order to create justice together. So the point that I wanna make here is that rest is not really about you. It's not about what vacation you go on, what hike you did, how you meditated, what concert you went to, or what Netflix series you finally got to binge watch. But side note, if you do binge watch a Netflix series, please tell me, I'm always looking for something new. <laughs> the temptation with rest is that we should show off how we rested, but it's not really about that. We're not supposed to show these things off. Rest is about recharging yourself, 
so that you can bring the best of yourself, your goodness, your restoration, your honesty, your truth into your community. And finally, rest needs boundaries. So at day zero, God began creation. And the first thing God did was create light to establish its relationship to darkness. The word used here is badal, meaning to separate or to divide. And there's this book by Lisa Sharon Harper called The Very Good Gospel, where she explains that God did not erase the darkness. God didn't really overcome the darkness. The darkness still exists. But when God created light, God put a boundary on the darkness. So when God said, let there be light, God gave us the example of creating boundaries to protect our abilities to rest, our abilities to create, our abilities to dream. And I'm particularly drawn to this because like, boundary making is not something that comes easy to me. I found, about it, I found out about it like two years ago when I was a missionary and my, um, our managers, I guess is the word I'm gonna use, um, they were checking in with my husband and I because we were missionaries at the time um, to see what our action plan was for the situation that we were in. And when I told her what my plan was, which was basically like, we have an open door policy, I promise you. She just like froze like, oh, that's great. As in you don't have boundaries and without those boundaries, you're not gonna be able to pursue ministry in a healthy manner, which means you're not gonna be able to love people in a healthy manner because you haven't taken the time to love yourself. When we create boundaries, what we are doing is we're creating a verbal statement or an action that we can communicate to someone in order for ourselves and our community to feel safe, secure, and supported in a relationship. God had a relationship to obscurity. God had a relationship to darkness. And we all have a relationship to the things, the people, and the institutions that hurt us. But that relationship does not define us. So we set boundaries to define how we choose to be safe in a relationship. A boundary protects our rest, which impacts our ability to dream, to build, and create. And sometimes the boundary is made to tell people how you want to be treated. And sometimes the boundary is made so we can learn how to care for others. And sometimes the boundary is made to, pro to protect the community from further harm. So creating a boundary is a pathway towards rest when living in a system and a society that would easily objectify you, use you, overwork you, and undervalue you. When we create a boundary, we say, I am deserving of this because you were created for rest. And when that is taken away from you, then you're not living in the purpose of your creation. What I want us to know is that when God was living in the darkness in day zero, God dreamed of you. That was when our triune God rested in the obscurity of darkness and as they held each other close, they dreamed of you and they created this world for you. They created it for us. And we are made in the image of God, which means you are meant for community actively working towards building new worlds, 
where everyone is secure and sustained enough to receive rest. There is no debt, no discrimination, no poverty, no microaggressions, no gaslighting, no abuse, no enslavement, no hardship. There is just rest. But in order to be people who bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth, we must be people who rest. We can't bring what we can't live. We can't make it a truth if it's not a truth in our own lives. Because rest is the intervention to the cycle of violence. And without rest, we become what, we are, what is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy us. And I don't want that for anyone. It is easy for me to say that we are currently living at day zero. There's so much violence and hatred and pain, but God has existed at day zero. God dreamed of us at day zero. God has been here and God is still here with us. God never left us. And together with God, we are building a new world that will lead us to our day of ultimate rest, that will lead us to day seven. And with that, I wanna end this message with one of the most important lessons I've ever learned about creating the Jesus, the Jesus of justice, the justice of Jesus. And the lesson is this, you must be gentle with yourself so that you can be gentle with others. So let's pray. Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God who is with us, God who is for us. We thank you. We thank you for coming to this earth to remind us that there is an intervention to violence. We thank you that you've created the word, your word, to show us that we can pursue a new path of peacemaking, a new path of justice, a new path that says what we know now doesn't have to be what will be. It is easy for me to come up here and preach about rest. It is not easy to implement it into my own life. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you come here and hover over each and every one of us like you did when you hovered over the waters, that you create a new vision in us, a new world in us, that will help us pursue the beautiful work of rest. God, I thank you that you dwell in us. I thank you that you are ever near. I just pray that we can find you and seek you give ourselves moments and space where we can rest in you and know that that is more productive than anything that is seeking to burn us out. And even in the moments when we can't find you, we can't find rest, where it feels like we have to keep on going and push through and hustle harder, I call for an intervention to remind us that we were created for day seven. Bring us there, Lord. Bring us to you. And it's in your son's name we pray.